Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Um, I was asked to speak about this topic, uh, kind of, um, Lordship Salvation, and um, let me define it for you first of all, because it is a big controversy in the church today, and by the way, I've written two books on it. One was my doctoral dissertation, and it's almost 300 length, pages in length. I think the printed version is a little bit less, but it's pretty deep. If you want a smaller version, I put the, out this summer a 50-page version of this controversy called Lordship Salvation, which is a lot easier to read, and uh, they're out there also. So what is Lordship Salvation? You know, when Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, uh, he didn't know he'd start a controversy that would last uh, for centuries and, and, and really sharpen in the last few decades. Um, we've been arguing about what he meant ever since. Uh, but let me give you a simple definition. To believe in, the, in Jesus Christ for salvation includes submitting to him as Lord and master of all of your life. This is an idea that you'll hear preached quite often by many, many popular teachers and preachers. And um, there wasn't much pushback until probably the 60s, and Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote some things and uh, started the debate then. And, and uh, then a book came out, uh, a very important book came out, and um, my dissertation was largely in reaction to that. But there's four different areas where we really want to talk about this and stop me any time with a question. Faith, repentance, uh, lordship, and discipleship. How does it see those as opposed to how we hopefully see them? Uh, first of all, they say that faith is submission. Um, whereas I would understand that faith in the Bible is being convinced that something is true, being persuaded that something is true, and trustworthy, and therefore I put my trust in it. So to believe in Jesus Christ means I believe that he is who he says he is, he did what he said he did, and he gives me what he promises he'll give me. It, it doesn't involve me submitting myself to him as the master of all my life, although that should be what I do as soon as possible, maybe even at the time of my salvation. But they say that a person cannot be saved unless they submit themselves totally, 100% to Jesus Christ. And, um, and follow him in a life of obedience. So what they're doing, really, in my opinion, is pulling merit, human merit or works, into the front of the gospel. We call that front-loading the gospel. And also into the back end of the gospel. You have to ob also obey him all of your life. Okay? Um, so there, there's that difference in our understanding of faith. There's simple faith as being convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And then there's faith that they've redefined as obedience, uh, surrender, commitment, and that's why it's called lordship salvation, because they say you have to make Jesus lord of all of your life to be saved, okay? Any, any, anything that needs to be asked or answered here? Okay? Then let's talk about a second area where there's a lot of discussion, and that has to do with the idea of repentance. And many who teach the Lordship Salvation view teach that you must turn from every sin in order to be saved. Some of them say you need to want to turn from every sin or intend to turn from every sin. And with that, there should be a deep sorrow and grief 
for your sins. Um, now, now, we know from experience that often that is true, that people come to know Jesus Christ out of some kind of situation, and they realize the sinfulness of their past life, and they really grieve about it, and they're really sorry about it, and they do turn immediately from those sins. That's not the experience of everyone, however. Um, my experience was, uh, as a teenager, I was saved at the age of 19. At the age of 18, I was running around partying with a friend of mine, doing all kinds of things that shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Let's leave it at that. And uh, then he died of a drug overdose. And, uh, you know, I said, you know what? I don't want to end up like that. I'm going to change my ways. I cut my long hair. I stopped, uh, stopped doing drugs, uh, almost stopped drinking. And, um, and I started, I went out looking for a job, wanted to clean up my life. So I actually repented before I heard the gospel and believed at the age of 19. So repentance is a flexible term that can apply to a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. But what, what the Lordship Salvation View is looking for is a radical change in life. Now, of course, you see that there can be problems with that, just like with the word, how they define faith. Uh, for example, with repentance, uh, those who are taught that the gospel involves turning from every sin, well, you and I know that we, even though we want to turn from sins, we still mess up, don't we? Um, uh, it's not just the big ones sometimes. It's sometimes things like anger, jealousy, jealousy covetousness, uh, lust, and things like that. As much as I would like to do away with all those things in my life, uh, I'm not always successful, and therefore I would always have a base, basis for doubting my salvation. Have I really turned away from all of those things? You see? And it's the same way with the word faith. It leaves a lot of room for doubt because have I really submitted to him everything in my life? Am I totally committed to him? Well, I didn't act like it yesterday when I lost my temper. So am I really submitted to him? Did I really believe in Jesus as my Savior? So you see, there's a lot of room for doubt. And doubt always comes when we put the impetus on our performance instead of what Jesus has done. When we keep our focus on what Jesus has done and we simply believe that, there's no room for doubt. We believe who Jesus is, what he's done, and his promise that he's made to us. We accept that as true, and we're saved. If I throw my performance into there by what, how much I believe or how committed my faith is or how much I've turned from my sins, I'm always going to have room for doubt. And any honest teacher of lordship salvation would admit that they don't live up totally to the gospel that they preach. So repentance can be a confusing word, and there's actually a number of different views uh, about repentance, but I explain it simply as a change of mind. And that's because the word, first of all, in the Greek language, metanoia, met, metanoeo, means to change your mind. It's made up of two words that mean uh, after, uh, meta, and uh, noeo, which means to think, or to think later, or to change your mind. That's the, what the word means. We don't really have a good English translation for it. So we use a pretty poor word, which is repentance. I say it's a poor word because the root from the word repentance comes from the Latin word penitentia, which is the idea of doing deeds of contrition. So the English word implies doing deeds of contrition, implies action in it. The Greek word, however, simply means a change of mind. And the proof of that is not only have linguists throughout 
uh, history always translated it as a change of mind. But when the, when the Greek um, theologians went to translate the Hebrew Old Testament, guess who they had repenting more than anybody else in the Bible? God. They translated the Hebrew word for repent with metanoia. They weren't saying God sinned. They're just saying he changed his mind. And if you use the old King James Version, you'll see that still used about 26 times in the old King James Version that God repented of judging Nineveh or something like that. It simply means a change of mind. But um, the Lordship Salvation view has loaded that with a lot of theology. You need to turn from your sins. You need to be sorry for all of your sins. You need to show a radical change of life. And uh, that is confusing to people and undermines their faith and assurance. Any questions about that? You guys have any questions? This is, by the way, this is being live streamed, so I just want to okay. let you know. Got Roy over here. So that's why we need to use the microphone. All right. And I'm talking fast because uh, I was given my time limit, so hope I'm not talking so fast you can't follow. I'm a New Yorker, so you're not talking all that fast, so you're fine. Um, two questions. So going back to faith and then again to repentance. So for faith, the way that you defined it was, and I, and I get that you're trying to define it under the, the auspices of how lordship de salvation has defined faith. But if we look at faith as a, as a simple recognition of a truth, right, which is kind of how you defined it. I have faith that the chair will hold me up, but I, wouldn't we dispute the faith that one has in a chair holding them up versus the concept of saving faith would bring someone to the knowledge of the, of, the, of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that's question one. And then question two, similarly to repentance, right? This idea that you change your mind towards doing something, that you have a sense of, of I guess, regret, for lack of a better term, over a choice that you've made. Well, again, similar concept, right? So I could have regret, kind of like you described in your testimony, like you had regret over the actions that you were doing that ultimately you saw your friend that ended up taking his life as a result of those activities, you saw that you had regret and you changed. But wouldn't there also be a, a saving repentance, right? A spiritual type of repentance that is somewhat different than the, I'm trying to find a good word for it. I don't want to use the word secular because it's not the right term, but maybe a, a, the layman explanation of re repentance. So those, I guess it's two questions. You talk fast too. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was a New Yorker. I'm not sure that I really got the questions out of that, but uh, faith, faith, let's go back to faith. Faith starts with an acknowledgement that something is true. And, um, and there, there is a discussion about whether faith involves the actual action of trust. Like, I believe this stool will hold me up. I believe that, uh, and so I trust it. I sit in it. Uh, it's hard to separate, though, uh, what mental... Uh, agreement or mental assent is from uh, the, the, the will aspect of it. And I think sometimes we are mis, not misled, but I think we overthink it with a Western model of psychology where we separate things, whereas faith just involves the inner person. And that's as much as we can conclude from, uh, from the scriptures, is that faith just involves the inner person and the inner convictions of someone. So if I have an inner conviction about this chair, I didn't examine it, uh, and, and I didn't think twice. I just, I just sat on it uh, because I believed it would hold me up. And so how do you distinguish that between I didn't make a conscious decision, trust it today, I just did. So they're very closely intertwined. 
And likewise, uh, the word repentance is closely intertwined with the word faith. If we define repentance as a change of mind, think about this. Um, now you can change your mind about a lot of things and not be saved. Like I said, I repented of many things before I became a Christian. You can change your mind about a lot of things and still never be saved. You can believe a lot of things and still never be saved. You can believe that there's a God. You can believe Jesus is God. You can believe Jesus died on the cross. You can believe that Jesus died, uh, rose again from the dead. You can believe that Jesus died to save the world. But you know what? Congratulations, you've just believed a history lesson. You haven't believed to salvation until you believe that Jesus died for me, and I am going to accept that promise for myself. And that was, that's what distinguishes us from somebody like the Roman Catholics who believe the historical facts about Jesus, but, but are still trusting in their works partially for their salvation. So you can believe a lot of things and not be saved. You can repent about a lot of things and not be saved. But there's an overlap in the ideas of repentance and faith in this way. If repentance is a change of mind, what happens when you believe in Jesus? You have changed your mind about something. You've suddenly said, oh, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I didn't understand that before, but now I understand that. And so you believe in Jesus. I've changed my mind. Oh, Jesus is God, and he died on the cross for me. I've changed my mind about who he is. He really did rise from the dead. I've changed my mind. So repentance involves a change of mind. I like to even define it as a change of heart. Reason, uh, and the biblical reason and background or basis for that is that in the New Testament, the mind and the heart are used interchangeably. They're used synonymously. So repentance is an interchange. Um, and a conviction that I've been going down the wrong way, I need to change my thinking about something. I need to believe in Jesus as my Savior for whatever reason. So sin is not always the object of repentance. The Bible says sometimes it's repentance from dead works, repentance from idols, repentance towards God. Acts chapter 20 says. So uh, you have to define the object of repentance. What are you changing your mind about? And when it comes to salvation, you're changing your mind about whatever is keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but I talked about as fast as you did when you asked it. Charlie, I have a question. Could you um, uh, make, uh, give the distinction and the relationship between justification and sanctification and how that fits into what you're saying. Yeah, very good. Uh, it does fit in very, very good because when you talk about belief or repentance, you have to distinguish in, in your definitions the root from the fruit. Faith is the root. Obedience and submission is the fruit. In repentance, a change of mind is the root, and a change in actions is the fruit. And that's why in Luke 3.8 and Matthew 3.8, John the Baptist says to the Pharisees, repent and do works befitting repentance. Well, that tells you right there that repentance isn't doing something different. It's change your mind, change your thinking, and then do it. So justification is a change in our position before God, which should lead to our sanctification, which is our change in our uh, Christian progress, Justification happens in an instant. Sanctification happens over a lifetime. Justification is through faith in Christ. Sanctification is through faithfulness in Christ. Justification is new birth. Sanctification is growth and development. And we could go on and on with the contrast to help you understand. They're closely related. You can't have 
sanctification without justification. But theologically speaking, and that's what the theology is all about, is making clear definitions and distinctions. There's a distinction. And what Lordship Salvation has done is it has combined them into one idea. You're, you're justified and sanctified. Your justification guarantees your sanctification all at once. And so I think that they've confused those two ideas together. Okay. Let me go on with another idea then, uh, this whole issue about lordship, because they would say, take a verse like uh, Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would emphasize that. Paul was telling the jailer, the Philippian jailer, that he needs to make Jesus the Lord of all, and master of all of his life. And so he must be master of all, using Acts chapter 16.31. They also use Romans um, 10.9 and 10, where it says, Believe in your heart that Jesus, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay, there we go. That's the phrase there. I can't cite the whole passage. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And they take a passage like Romans 10, 9, and 10, and the word confess to mean, boy, there's so many different definitions. Some people say you're not saved unless you say it with your mouth. Some people saved, say you're not saved unless you confess it in front of the whole church, and that's why they have you walk up to the front of the church. Some people say that you're not saved until you confess it in baptism. Some people say that you're not saved until you confess it by how you live your life. So there's all different kinds of ways. I, I believe that the word confess is simply a, a synonym for the word faith or believe in Jesus Christ as God, Lord, in Romans chapter 10. But that's a whole other lesson and discussion. So, but what they want to say is that in Lordship Salvation is these passages are teaching that you must subject yourself to Jesus Christ as your master and, in order to be saved. And so the Philippian jailer needed to know that Jesus was master of all of his life. Now, I have a problem with that because what would a pagan Roman Philippian jailer know about what Jesus demands from his life? Probably zero. So how could he submit every area of his life to Jesus when he didn't know what Jesus taught that that was all about? Where do we find what that is all about, we find it in the Gospels where Jesus gives the conditions for discipleship. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Would a Roman soldier understand what that means? He says, you must uh, hate, your, hate your father, mother, and brother, and sister if you want to be my disciple. Or love me more than your father, mother, and brother, and sister. He says it both ways. He says, you have to abide in my word if you want to be my disciple indeed. Would a pagan Roman jailer know those things? Or was Paul just using the word Lord as a title of Jesus, for Jesus Christ that's, that meant he was God, and the Roman jailer needed to understand that, that this Jesus is someone very special. He's deity, and, uh, and if you believe in him, uh, you will be saved. Uh, the interesting thing about Acts 16.31 is in the previous verse, verse 30. The jailer says, Sirs, he's talking to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the interesting thing is that he's using the exact same word that Paul uses when he says, Believe in the Lord. The word is curios, um, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 30, the jailer uses the same word, kurios, but in the plural, kurioi. In other words, he's calling Paul and Cyrus lords. Just like we say in the English language, uh, or the Spanish language is senor, 
but that's also used for God. Um, so Paul was using it as both a title that indicated his deity. And, uh, and just as the jailer was using it as a title of great respect for Paul and Silas. So to use it as a title objectively is not the same thing as making a condition for salvation subjectively. For example, there, there are people today who uh, take it either way. They'll say, well, I know, I know Joe Biden won the election, or I know Trump won the election, but he's not my president. In other words, they're not going to submit to him, they're not going to subject themselves to him, but guess what? He, he is your president. Trump or Biden. He is your president. That's an objective fact. Whether you submit to him or not is a subjective decision. So what Lordship Salvation has done is taken a, an objective fact that Jesus is Lord and made it a subjective decision on our part. You have to submit to him in order to be saved. Um, but that again is very confusing to people and leaves a lot of room for doubt. Am I totally submitted to him as my Lord? Sometimes. Not all the time. Ask my wife. Right there. Not going to lie. Not all the time, but I try to be. Sometimes it happens for people at the moment of salvation. Sometimes it takes years for people to submit areas of their life to him. It's an ongoing process of progressive sanctification. But to demand it of somebody at the moment of salvation um, would really kind of make people hypocrites and confuse sanctification with justification. Think back about when uh, Paul, the apostle, before he was the apostle, he was on the Damascus Road. And he was, saw the great light. He gives his testimony, Acts 26, and he describes what happened there. He saw the great light, and he said, who, who is this? It's Jesus that you're persecuting. And he says, Lord, what must I do? What should I do? He recognized him. We take that as his salvation. And then he asked the question, what should I do? And that's the normal progression for most of us as we come to know Jesus as Savior and we say, wow, God loves me that much. God's grace is so good. Wow, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then we find out, he, he says, well, I want you to offer your bodies to me as a living sacrifice. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. But see, Lord isn't just deity. It's also high priest and king and, and um, creator and everything else. The jailer wouldn't have known all those things, of course. So that can be a confusing uh, gospel to people. Any questions there before I move on to another? Well, this fourth issue is very important too. It's about the issue of, sal of discipleship because the Lordship salvation takes the difficult conditions for discipleship that I just named for you that Jesus said. And by the way, he always said them to his disciples. Uh, maybe a mixed crowd, but his disciples were present. And he was telling his disciples that they needed to become Christians? That doesn't make sense. No, he was telling them they needed to be more of a disciple. You abide in my word, you'll be my disciple indeed or truly. He doesn't say believe in me. He says abide in me. It's a different word, different discussion. So Jesus gives these difficult conditions for discipleship, and Lordship salvation makes them conditions for salvation. Um, and they believe that every Christian is a disciple. The word disciple means, it comes from the word to learn, so a learner or a follower or somebody like an apprentice who's learning from a master. In the days of Jesus, they would follow a rabbi, and uh, you would say, he would say, come follow me, and that meant, I want you to live with me and eat with me and learn from me until you become like me. 
Matthew 10.25, it's enough that every servant becomes like his master. That was the goal of discipleship. It's a process of transformation where you become like your master. And, um, but they want to say that every Christian is a disciple because since the gospel is you have to deny yourself all your own desires and purposes and goals and ambitions and you have to take up your cross, Luke says daily, by the way. That's awfully confusing to people, isn't it? To make salvation something you have to do every day. Take up your cross, in other words, you need to be willing to suffer and die for Jesus Christ and then follow him. That means live life with him day by day and obey his commandments, abide in his word. You, every, you have to do these things in order to be saved. And, of course, that leaves a lot of room for doubt. So they believe that disciples are born, not made. I believe that disciples are made, not born. That discipleship is a decision that needs to be made uh, at the moment of salvation, if you know enough. But as you learn what's required of you and what Jesus asks of you, we, we make those decisions every day. And I make decisions today, and I'll make decisions tomorrow. And the decisions that God is asking me to make in my life of journey of discipleship are different from the things he's asking you to do in your life. But he's going to continue to challenge you to be more of a disciple day by day. So lordship salvation, I think, is, is an incorrect gospel because it's asking up front works and commitments and promises instead of, again, focusing on Jesus Christ who did everything that we never could do. And um, it, it becomes a gospel of doubt instead of a gospel of assurance. So sometimes the Lordship salvation view would call the view that I hold the no Lordship view. And uh, it, it's really kind of a, a below the belt hit because I absolutely believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, if he was not Lord, he could not be Savior. If he was not God, he couldn't have saved us given an eternal sacrifice, a sacrifice for the whole world arisen from the dead, right? So I believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I believe in Lordship sanctification. But I don't believe in Lordship salvation the way I presented it to you. So I think that might be the end. Uh, oh, no, it's not. It compromises free grace because it gives difficult conditions. I've been saying this all along. It gives different, difficult conditions for salvation. Um, they say that every Christian is a disciple, but if we were honest with one another, we would all know that we're not all submitted to all those conditions of discipleship, and we know Christians who are not, who are struggling. And um, I think that might be it. I'm pressing the wrong button. Sorry about that. Get down here. They say that grace has to be costly. They talk a lot about costly grace. And I like to say that grace is free. The very definition of grace comes from the word gift, which is something free. But they say, no, grace has to be costly. In other words, God's, God saves you and gives you the gift of eternal life, but you have to show that you earned it or deserve it by your merits. So that's called front-loading the gospel. They backload the gospel by saying, well, uh, you might be saved for free, but if you don't show it by your good works, then you never really were saved. And that's how that view goes. I think that might be the end. It confuses justification with sanctification. We've talked about that. Justification is an instantaneous event. Sanctification, a lifetime process. And it asks of Christians uh, an understanding of spiritual issues that uh, non-Christians would not be aware of. They don't know what it means to be a disciple or to follow. Uh, they're dead in their sins. How much spiritual truth are they supposed to understand? So how can they submit themselves to Jesus as Lord and Master of their lives? 
And it makes assurance of salvation impossible. I've been saying that all along because it becomes subjective. Did I repent? Did I believe enough? Did I turn from all of my sins? Is, did I really make Jesus master of my life? Am I really following him as a disciple? And it leads to an unhealthy introspection which just gets you all mired in, in the muck. And, you, and I like to say it, it, it really will stunt your Christian growth because you can't go forward if you're always looking backward with doubt, wondering about your salvation. The basis of assurance has to be God's word. God promises eternal life to whoever believes in him for it. And if you've done that, you can say once, now, and forever, I'm a, I am saved because Jesus did what I could never do. He died on my behalf, and I put my trust in him, not in my own self. So you get your eyes off of your, your faith and stop examining to see if you had enough faith and whether you really repented and uh, am I really a disciple, all this stuff, and look at Jesus and say, you know what, I don't know how I'm doing, but he did it all. He, he said, it is finished. And that included me. So that's the difference between what we call a free grace gospel and a lordship salvation gospel. I wrote the book Lordship Salvation because it was a controversy, especially at that time, it still is today, but also because I saw the damage it was doing to so many people who hear that kind of preaching. And I started to hear it on the radio. I'd listened to a very popular preacher and I gained a lot of knowledge from him. Then he went to the book of First John and saying, well, the book of First John is a test of salvation. If you don't love your brother, you're not saved. If you don't hate, if you don't live righteousness, you're not saved. If you don't hate sin, you're not saved. And it got me all confused. I had to stop listening to that preacher. He's still preaching it today, though. Charlie? Yeah. Um, I have heard some well-known Bible teachers, and we might be talking about the same one, but several of them have said these are evangelical you know, pastors who are well-known um, who say that the best you can do is that you could have 99% assurance that you're saved. Mm -hmm. And, of course, first of all, contrast the term eternal security versus assurance. Secondly, why would someone say that? Where are they coming from when they say the best you can do is have 99% assurance? Eternal security means that once I believe in Jesus Christ, my salvation is secure forever. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to lose it. Okay, that's what eternal security means. Assurance is the subjective realization of that fact, that you, 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 you believe that, and so you're assured of your salvation. There are some who say that they, they only have 99% assurance, and that can come from both, both sides, both different ends of the theological spectrum. I like to say I'm in the middle. Of course, everybody does. I call myself a biblicist. I reject titles. I call myself a biblicist. I just go where the Bible leads me, not where my theology pushes me. Now, some have been pushed real far over here into what's called extreme Calvinism or tulip Calvinism. And they believe that you can't be sure that you're saved until the day that you die. Put it briefly, because they believe in a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, which means that if you're, if you're saved, God gave you faith as a gift, and he irresistibly drew you to himself, and therefore you're going to live a Christian life until the day that you die. So you don't really know and have, haven't persevered until you die. If you die in faith, then maybe the moment before you die, you can say, I'm a Christian after all. So the elect, they say all the elect are saved and can have eternal security. But you don't know if you're elect until you die. That's 22. 
Now the other end of the spectrum is the Arminian camp, and the Arminian camp says you can lose your salvation. So they say, I can have assurance today if I'm living righteously and morally. But, since I can't predict the future and I can lose my salvation, I can't have assurance tomorrow or about my future. So they're not 99% sure. They're sure, they're sure today, maybe 100%, but they, they admit that they can't be sure about their future. So yes, some very popular preachers, I have it on tape, were interviewed and saying, are you 100% sure that you're a Christian? And they, he, he was only willing to say 99%. They have to have leave room in there uh, because it depends on their works and their performance and their perseverance. Listen, my friends, this is the good news that we just love to declare to people all over the world who mostly buy into the Armenian camp where we go. Everybody's afraid of losing their salvation. And, uh, and the wonderful news for us is if you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin today, we're not going to look at your performance and ask how you're doing. We're just going to say, praise the Lord, you're saved. And now, how can we help you live the kind of life that he wants you to live? That's good news. And that relieves us from fear and, and takes the doubt away. Uh, I mean, these pastors are just liberated. That's why we go back uh, over and over again. It just liberates them and puts a big smile on their face and joy in their hearts. Did I answer that question enough? Yes, enough? very well. Yes, since you mentioned about your ministry overseas, could you give us a snippet of uh, the countries that you have gone to and, and what you do there? I've been to almost 20 countries, so I don't think I'll list them all, but but our regular uh, venues for teaching pastors have been Myanmar, where John has helped in the uh, Philippines. I teach at Word of Life, uh, pastors' conferences, and Bible school, and that's a, been a regular thing, but canceled this year, as we've also canceled Myanmar. And go to India, and we teach pastors there uh, for many years, um, but that's closed down this year. And um, we go to, uh, been going to Ghana the longest, that's in West Africa, and teaching pastors and church workers there. Uh, we don't know if that's canceled. We have three African trips planned for the summer. I don't know if we'll be going on them. Burundi in the East Africa, the poorest country in the world, we've been going there and um, teaching pastors. One, one fellow has planted 60 churches. We, he has about 200 pastors, assistants pastors, and we go and teach them uh, every year. We don't know if we'll do that in August or not. Um, Peru, we've done pastor training there. And um, in Europe, I've been invited to teach in Ukraine for two weeks this fall. I don't know if I'll do that or not. I just invited the other day, so I'm not sure about that. Um, people have discovered Zoom, and so I'm getting these invitations from all over the world. I could be a missionary at my desk at this point. But anyway, yeah, international travel has been canceled and, until we're sure how things shape up, and then the summer may include three African trips. Um, but John and I were just reminiscing that we really miss being in Myanmar right now, being our good friends there. But I was able to send them money. They... Joseph said he used up all the books that we gave out last time, and he can get another 1,800 printed for $3,000. That's cheap, isn't it? So we just sent him $3,000 to print up books. I'm selling my books back there because you got the money, and I send that money over to the people who can't. They print the books there, and they give them out for free. Um, so we don't make any money off our books. Well, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much. Let's thank Dr. Bing for his thank teaching. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.